Okay. Uh, we're live now. Can you hear us, Mr. Kennedy? Yes, I can. Okay, great. We can see you too. Um, I don't know if you remember, but um, about a week ago or a little over maybe 10 days ago, we were both at this uh, protest in Berlin. You were one of the speakers and you're probably the one who actually managed to calm down the police. It, was, it wasn't the crowd that had to be calmed down, but it, but it was the police. And I briefly introduced myself. Uh, I have been working as a trial lawyer, mostly against corrupt large corporations, but both here in Germany and I'm also uh, licensed to practice law in California. And I uh, very briefly told you that we're going to attack the PCR tests, which are being used to give, uh, in effect, false testimony because uh, those people who claim that the PCR test, a positive PCR test, at the same time says that somebody is infected with the coronavirus are uh, not telling the truth because the PCR tests are neither uh, licensed for diagnostic purposes, nor are they even capable of telling you anything about infections. However, they are the basis for everything that's been happening all over the world. And the first one was invented by a German professor, uh, Drosten. And uh, because the World Health Organization uh, said that the entire world uh, should be using these PCR tests, um, we are working on a class action to be filed either in the United States or in Canada. Uh, we're in touch. A former student of mine um, is now um, teaching at a school in Canada. We're in touch with a number of law firms. And uh, we believe that if we manage to persuade the general public and the courts, of course, that um, we that the PCR tests are completely incapable of telling you anything about infections, that'll be the end of the whole story, in particular about uh, uh, the end of mandatory vaccination. And that is uh, that is something that you're highly interested in, right? Stopping vaccinations. Oh, I'm interested in uh, stopping vaccinations that are not are improperly tested, or that uh, you know, or that are more dangerous potentially than the uh, than COVID. Mm. I mean, if somebody came up with a vaccine that did what people think it's going to do, which is you get one shot, you're protected for life from COVID, and um, and there are uh, only minimal side effects, like one in a million, which is what, which is the, the number that CDC uses. And I would say, God bless you if you want to take that. Um, I don't think vaccines should be mandatory no matter what. I don't think government has a right to, um, to subject citizens to unwanted medical interventions. We, you know, we signed a treaty after World War II where we all agreed that that would never happen again. Uh, the Nuremberg Treaty. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what I really fight for is to make sure that vaccines should be li have liability so that the company actually has an incentive to make the vaccine safer. Um, the vaccine should be tested against placebos for long periods of time so that we can we can detect injuries that have long diagnostic horizons or that have long incubation periods.
as many of the autoimmune diseases and neurodevelopmental diseases or even cancers that could be associated with the vaccines, you won't see them for in a 45-day test. They emerge later. And so I want to make sure that if, if we do use vaccines, that they're safe, they're effective, and that people have redress against the companies if they do get injured. Yeah. That is, uh, just to explain to you who we are, I don't know if anybody told you, uh, we are four attorneys and we are the founders of the Corona Committee here in Germany. We've been hearing experts, uh, we have two tort lawyers specializing in medical law, uh, myself, I'm a tort lawyer, and uh, my colleague Viviane Fischer, um, who had the, the initial idea uh, of doing this. She's both a lawyer and an economist. So she knows both sides of the story. She can tell that there are a lot of, there's a lot of uh, collateral damage as far as the econo econo economy is concerned as well. Um, we've been listening for the past six or seven weeks, we've been listening to experts, medical experts, scientists from all over the world, including from the United States. We talked to, I don't know if you know her, Pam Popper, uh, who is quite active uh, in on the uh, side of uh, people who are who don't who do not trust the government as far as this corona crisis is concerned um, and the net result is that three immunologists three professors of immunology both from germany and uh, the netherlands and uh, the third one is ireland. from ireland right ms kale all three of them agreed that we're being fooled by our governments, at least here in Germany, um, if they tell us that these tests can tell you anything about infections. They can only tell you that the, if you test positive, the only thing it tells you is that a fragment of a molecule was found in your body, but nobody knows what kind of molecule. It's, it's not necessarily a virus. It could be a fragment that's a, a leftover of your body's immune system fighting a common cold, for example. That's all. Um, and that's why we're so very absolutely certain that we're on the right track when we're trying to attack those people who were selling the and who still are selling these PCR tests as the um, gold standard of um, detecting infections. Um, I know from my work as a medical lawyer, as a uh, medical malpractice lawyer at the University of Göttingen, and I used to teach there, that it takes a long time between seven and eight years uh, to come up with a new vaccine. And that's what's bothering us as far as this uh, vaccine discussion is concerned, because even the government here, which was being lobbied by those people who I just spoke about, including uh, Bill Gates' uh, chief lobbyist um, about a year ago, uh, our own government keeps telling us that there can only be an end to this crisis if a vaccine is found. However, there's not been seven years or eight years uh, of testing, but only six or seven months. And I think, is that what you're worried about, that people are trying to push a vaccine into the market that is not safe? Well, I think, well, yeah, of course, I don't want that to happen. And I think they're going to have a hard time actually figuring out something that is safe in the in the truncated, abbreviated kind of um, testing they're doing, they're also, they're not using 
animal testing mm -hmm. um, uh, initially. So you miss a chance to look at some of the signals, particularly the signal for pathogenic priming, which is a, a you know a unique um, danger from COVID vaccines, from coronavirus vaccines, and. If you, and you are, are you familiar with that phenomenon? Yes. Uh, COVID vaccines uniquely in the past and every other attempt to make coronavirus vaccines, and there have been many of them, has ended with a vaccine that expresses, that, that triggers a very robust antibody response mm -hmm. and fools vaccine developers into believing that they have a very, very good product. But when you challenge the people or the animals that have that antibody response by actually exposing them to the wild virus, instead of being immune to that virus, as you would expect, they actually get far sicker and many of them die. Mm -hmm. And so you have a situation where a vaccine, and this is widely accepted through a phenomena that is known as pathogenic priming, it actually primes your system to get much sicker from the wild virus rather than be immune to it. Mm -hmm. um, the phenomena is also known as paradoxical immune enhancement. It's paradoxical. It makes you sicker rather than better. So that's you know, that is one issue. The other issue is, um, is how do you, are there placebo, true placebos being used? And for example, the Moderna vaccine is not being tested against placebo at all. It's the leading vaccine. Number two, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has now been shut down those trials temporarily because um, two of the people who got it, who were in the study group, got transverse myelitis, which is a neurological disease, a very serious neurological disease that causes paralysis. And that vaccine is not being tested against a true placebo. Instead, it's being tested. They originally said, yes, we're going to do that. We're going to test it against placebo like every other medicine. But instead, they got scared. And they tested it against a vaccine, a meningitis vaccine that has a very, very high risk profile. It's probably the most dangerous vaccine on the market by its own manufacturer's insert. When you test a product against something that that is already known to be very dangerous. The result is that you mask injuries in the product that you're testing because, and I'll give you an example, when they tested the Gardasil vaccine, they tested it against, instead of against a saline injection, they tested it against a neurotoxic aluminum adjuvant with a very high risk profile. And so you had 20,000 people in the study group and 20,000 in the control group and 2.3% of the girls in the study group, in other words, the vaccine group, got autoimmune disease within six months. That's a horrendous, horrendous result. Yeah. But because 2.3% of the girls in the control group that got the aluminum adjuvant also got 
autoimmune disease, they were able to say it's safe because we, we, we were able to match the control. But everybody believes that it's the aluminum adjuvant in that vaccine that is causing the autoimmune disease. So if you give the people in the study group the aluminum adjuvant and they get the same level of autoimmune disease, you can't say it's safe. Nine people in the study group died. None of them should have, according to background data. These are all young girls. But nine group in the control, nine girls in the control group also died. So they said, okay, it's safe. So that's how they use these what we call spiked placebos or faux-sebos, F-A-U-X, faux-sebos, or spike placebos, or poison placebos. And they're also called active comparators. Mm -hmm. And they're used to disguise injuries in the study group. That's what they're doing with many of these vaccines. They're not testing them against inert substances. They're testing them against substances that are very, very dangerous what? in order to injuries. Why do they do that? They do it because they can hide injuries as long as the number of people in the placebo, so-called placebo group, they're not placebos. Uh -huh. Placebo is an inert substance yeah. like salt or sugar. But if, if they use something very, very poisonous as a comparator in the control group, and they make sure to kill and injure the same number of people that the study group is killing and injuring, then they get approvals. Because they say, you know, and that's how all vaccines are approved historically. We have 72 mandated doses now in the United States, and not one of them has ever been tested against a placebo. So nobody has ever tested whether a vaccinated group has better health outcomes than an unvaccinated group. And, you know, the HHS is the agency that regulates vaccines in our country. It's the, it's the large agency in which CDC, FDA, and NIH are housed. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, Robert Kennedy is, is lying when he says we've never tested the vaccines against a placebo. So I sued them two years ago with my friend Del Bigtree. And I can, and they, for a year and a half, they sandbagged us and they stonewalled us. And then finally they came out and said, yeah, you're right. We've never tested, not one, not one of the vaccines has ever been tested against a placebo. That means that nobody knows what the risk profile is for that product. Mm -hmm. That means that nobody can tell you about any one of those vaccines that the vaccine is actually averting more problems than it's causing. Now, in the scientific literature, you know, we have, I think, probably 2,000 studies on our website. We've gone through all of the studies that we can find in the, on PubMed, which is the archive of all the peer-reviewed studies that have ever been done. And they're housed there by NIH. We've gone through those studies looking to see if we can find other people who have actually compared health outcomes in vaccinated populations to health outcomes in unvaccinated populations. And we found so far 61 studies. And all of those studies show that vaccinated children are far more likely to be ill 
and unvaccinated children. So this goes for a wide range of vaccines. The vaccinated kids with the DTP vaccine, which is diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, is a huge study funded by the Danish government. And, uh, and the scientists on that study were Peter A. A. B., who is the world's authority on um, on African vaccines, a big supporter of vaccines, incidentally. And what they found was that girls who got that DTP vaccine were unlikely to die of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. But they were 10 times more likely to die than any of their peers who were unvaccinated. But they were dying of things nobody associated with the vaccine. So they were dying of anemia, pneumonia, bilharzia, malaria, dysentery, upper respiratory infections. And, and they had 30 years of data showing that if you got vaccinated, you were 10 times more likely to die. If you were a girl and you got vaccinated, you're 10 times more likely to die than an unvaccinated child within the next six months. And they were rather the next two years. And the, um, and they, what they realized, nobody had ever connected to the dots that the only people who are dying are the ones who are vaccinated because the vaccine was protecting them against diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. But it had devastated their immune systems so that any other infection would come in and destroy them. And that's what you worry about. Are there injuries from these vaccines that are invisible to you know, to the regulatory authorities because they're not looking for them. And in our country, um, in, you know, our vaccine schedule exploded in 1986. I got three vaccines as a kid. My kids got 72 doses of 16 vaccines. And the big change happened in 1989 because two years earlier, Congress removed liability from vaccine companies. The law in our country now is no matter how negligent that company is, no matter how grievous your injury, no matter how toxic the ingredient, no matter how sloppy the line protocol by which they manufacture these vaccines, you cannot sue that company. Oh, and and I'll just say, I'll just make one other point. That when they passed that law, it made vaccines immensely profitable because it eliminated the big cost to every other medicine, which is downstream liabilities. So the company said, holy cow, we no longer have the big cost. And there was a gold rush to create new vaccines. And that began, you know, we ended up with 72 vaccines, 270 in the pipeline. But the big change happened in 1989. Children in our country, prior to 1989, there was a 12% occurrence incident of chronic disease. Children born after 1989, it's 54%. And by chronic disease, I mean three categories. Neurodevelopmental disease exploded in 1989. ADD, ADHD, speech delay, tics, Tourette's syndrome, narcolepsy, autism. Autism went from one in 10,000 in my generation to one in 34 in my children's generation. Second category, allergic disease. 
peanut allergies. I, I have 11 brothers and sisters, 77 cousins, and nobody has this peanut allergy. I have seven children. They all have allergies. Why is that? Because they were born after 1989. That's why. We know that aluminum in vaccines causes allergies to any protein that is in the ambient environment at the time you get that vaccine. So if there's a peanut oil excipient, you now have a lifetime allergy to peanuts. If there's Timothy weed outbreak in the environment, you now have a lifetime allergy to Timothy weed. So, so the allergic diseases, peanut allergy, food allergies, anaphylaxis, eczema, and, uh, and uh, asthma. And the final category, autoimmune diseases, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, lupus, all of these exploded beginning in 1989. And now we have an epidemic of all these diseases. We have the sickest generation in, in history, and we have traded a few harmless childhood infections, measles, mumps, rubella, and chicken pox for which are all self-limiting, all treatable um, for chronic diseases, which last a lifetime are uncurable and you know are devastating to everybody. There's uh, two things that we have learned through these hearings. One is, and that seemed to confirm what you're saying, even though I do believe that most of the public who is listening now to you is shocked because this is news to them, at least here uh, for the European public. One, uh, we spoke to a lot of uh, doctors and scientists from Italy, and they explained to us that one reason in particular was responsible for so many people dying in Bergamo, because right before uh, Corona hit, uh, there was, uh, they were all vaccinated uh, with a flu vaccine. That seems to have made them particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus. The other thing is that uh, 12 years ago, when the, uh, the guy who invented this PCR thing uh, for the coronavirus, uh, Professor Drosten of the Charité uh, Hospital here, when he also played a role in the swine flu, uh, there was a vaccine invented, which did in fact have very serious side effects, uh, narcolepsy being one of them, which is, uh, as, as but there's two doctors listening in. Uh, uh, one is, I don't know if you know him, a professor, uh, uh, Dr. Um, Vodak. He's the one who kicked in the door for the international community to start talking about this crisis. And uh, he told us that, and there's another uh, doctor from Austria. Um, he told us that narcolepsy is a disease that you have to live with and, and it cannot be cured. Uh, so that does seem to confirm precisely what you're saying. Um, what would you suggest? Well, the, uh, the 2009 vaccine was, was that, I mean, there were a number of them in 2009, but the one most widely used in Europe was Glaxo's um, product, which was called Pandemrix, and that yeah. caused, I think, 986, oh no, 1,300 narcolepsy cases and mm. 986 uh, mm. catalepsy cases that we know of. But um, it was a fast track vaccine and you know, it was, a, it was a big scam because the World Health Organization and Bill Gates pressured all of these African and European countries to sign what we call sleeper contracts with 
the $18 billion of sleeper contracts with Glaxo and some other vaccine makers, Sanofi, was another one to create flu vaccines if there was a flu. And, but it had to be, the, 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 the countries felt safe signing that contract because the, they would only be liable if the World Health Organization declared a stage six pandemic. And in order to have a stage six pandemic, you need to have one of the criteria is mass deaths in multiple countries. Well, in 2009, they changed the they definition. Had a, in 2009, what they did is they had a little tiny flu uh, a pandemic, which killed, I think, 244 people in Germany total, which is less than the seasonal flu. Yeah. And they, elim they, they eliminated the definition of pandemic, so no deaths would be required. Two months later, they declared a pandemic. It triggered all these sleeper contracts, and these countries now had, were forced to purchase this, this vaccine, which was never tested. It was fast-tracked. And, um, you know, it immediately started uh, causing these horrible, horrible injuries in people. And it was banned in Australia. It was pulled back in Europe and ultimately in the U.S. too. Um, but, you know, it was a scandal that, that Tony Fauci was deeply involved in, and he never paid the price. Your initial question about the assertion by the Italians that the flu shot may have primed yeah. their population, particularly their elderly population, mm -hmm. for um, greater mortality rates from COVID has, a strong, has some scientific support. And in January of this year, of 2020, the Pentagon did a study because they were trying to figure out from a from a um, from a preparedness or a readiness standpoint, whether the flu shot was prophylactic against coronavirus, not COVID-19, but other coronaviruses. They started this study two years ago. And so they gave flu shots to, you know, several thousand soldiers, and then they had a control group of soldiers who didn't receive it. What they found was the soldiers who received the flu shot were 36% more likely to get coronavirus. And um, that study is called WOLF, W-O-L-F-E, and it was published in January 2020. But there are many other studies, and we have them on our website, that have said, and they, you know, we've known this for many years, that the flu shot makes it much more likely about four to five times more likely to get a non-flu upper viral respiratory infection that includes coronavirus. Coxsackie virus and many other viruses, but coronavirus in many of these studies is particularly mentioned. And so we've known for many years that if you get the flu shot, you're more likely to get a coronavirus or some other a viral upper respiratory infection than if you than if you did not get the flu shot. Mm -hmm. So actually, so here in Germany now the uh, recommendation has been put out that uh, 
especially children, I think, should get a flu shot. So this is actually like the doesn't seem to be a very good advice from what you say. I I, I think and um, but yeah, I that, that that advice is not supported by the science. Now, I'm going to tell you this as a caveat. There are two recent studies that they just rolled out, and this is very typical, that purport to say that the coronavirus, that the flu vaccine will, is protective against coronavirus. One of those studies was a Brazilian study. Both of these studies have enormous problems. As soon as you look at them, the problems jump out at you. One of those studies is a Brazilian study, and the death rate in that study was 47%. Oh, it's very unclear, and the authors don't understand, don't ever explain what population are they studying and under what circumstances and what kind of controls were, were, were they using so that they were studying a group that had a 47% death rate. It doesn't sound like a typical population. And it, there's a lot of other weird problems with that study that looks like, you know, it was one of these studies that they crank out. And you guys are familiar what happened to the Lancet, uh, you know, on hydroxychloroquine and to JAMA, where they, you know, they, the industry controls these journals. They can crank out these phony studies very, very quickly. They put them up on Lancet, on New England Journal of Medicine, and on JAMA saying that hydroxychloroquine kills people. Two weeks later, um, the two principal journals were forced to retract those studies, humiliating, because yeah. they had just made up the data, just invented the data. In fact, they didn't want to, Lancet did not want to withdraw the study, but the uh, three of the four authors said, we don't want anything to do with this. We were we were lied. We were fooled, and they retracted it. Yeah. The last study is a JAMA study that was another Brazilian study, and in that study, they were giving, they were trying to demonstrate. It was clear they were trying to demonstrate that hydroxychloroquine was lethal. So, the the normal dose of hydroxychloroquine treating malaria or for treating COVID is 200 milligrams once a week, sometimes three times a week. The lethal dose we know is 5,000 milligrams. The Brazilian old people who they did this study on were getting 12,000 milligrams, two and a half times the lethal dose. And of course they killed a lot of them. And JAMA still has not retracted that article, even though the Brazilian authorities have indicted and are prosecuting, I think, 16 people who were involved in those studies for murder. They still won't take them down. That's how powerful the industry is at controlling the journals. It's even more powerful because parts of the industry, parts of the investors in the industry have also invested in the mainstream media so that they control parts of that uh, media business as well. Uh, and that yeah. makes it especially hard. That's because, and, and, and the only way that people can get uh, adequate information is by looking, by actively trying to find it on the internet. Uh, like, for example, watching Del Pigtree and other shows like that. 
Yeah, and it's hard to find on the internet too because the, you know, in our country, the mainstream media is completely owned by pharma. We changed the law in our country in 1997 um, so that to make it legal for pharmaceutical companies to do direct to consumer advertising on TV. There's only two countries in the world that allowed that, New Zealand and the United States. And as a result of that very bad decision, we now, the U.S. by far takes more medication per capita than any country yeah. in the world. We pay the highest prices and we have the worst health outcomes. But pharmaceutical companies own the evening news. Roger Ailes told me that on a typical evening news show, there are 22 advertisements and 17 of those are pharmaceutical advertisements. So they're not only controlling that platform for advertising, but they can also dictate content so that the news reporters know when Anderson Cooper has a $12 million salary, he knows that $10 million of that is coming from pharmaceutical companies, and he's not going to say anything that displeases them. And he's turned into, you know, all of our reporters are now pharmaceutical reps. They're constantly inflating, the, you know, the, the, the danger of infectious disease and telling people, get your flu shot, you know, do the, put your mask on, shaming you, doing whatever. And just, you know, reenacting, they are fronting for the pharmaceutical agenda. But in addition to that, the online platforms Facebook, Google, Instagram, YouTube are all tied in with the pharmaceutical company. Google um, is a vaccine producer. Google owns four companies. Google, you know, Google's parent company, Verily, owns um, four other companies that are making vaccines, including flu vaccines, uh, colon cancer vaccines, and COVID vaccines. So Google itself has a has deals with all the pharmaceutical companies because they're partners mining your data. Mm -hmm. For example, they have a $760 million agreement partnership with Glaxo. And so Google, if you go, you know, Google will tell people that it uses neutral search results when you do a search and it makes suggestions to you it's saying that those suggestions are the result of former search traffic mm -hmm. oh it they reflect who and how how often that particular request has been made in the past but if you look at anything to do with vaccines they'll you know, if you look up, if you look up the word vaccines are, it will be things like vaccines are good for you, vaccines are great for you, vaccines are wonderful. But if you look, but if you actually see those searches never occurred, and but they will not let you find any critical information about vaccines. They make it almost impossible, and they manipulate their search engine. It's called the SEAM effect, search engine manipulation effect. And it's a way of you know brainwashing people, but they hide information about what's critical of vaccines. And that's critical of anything that questions the pharmaceutical paradigm.
So they won't let you read about chiropractors. They won't let you read about new, um, you know, new, nutritious foods. They won't let you read about vitamins. They won't re let you read about osteopaths, functional medicine, integrative medicine. They will steer your search away from those areas because those areas compete with pharmaceutical companies who are their partners. So basically, what we really need is transparency. We need to explain, or the general public needs to understand what's really happening, what you're just explaining to us. And uh, my advice to Anderson Cooper would be to talk to his cousin, Timothy Oliphant, and Tim Timothy will probably tell him that it's justified to not do as you are told sometimes. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're um, yeah, one, one second. Mr. Kennedy, I have one more question with regards to this coronavirus vaccination that's now, you know, pending or, you know, like <laughs> coming coming at us. Um, since you mentioned the paradox um, immune system reaction that might occur, I was wondering if it's maybe especially dangerous if this uh, vaccine would be applied, as might be the case now, in the usual coronavirus season, which is maybe going to start like from, or approximately is going to start from November and goes through April, say, and then it might also be applied to especially the most vulnerable parts of our population since they claim there's not enough vaccine doses available. So it might be that we're looking at, uh, for instance, people in, in elderly, uh, you know, homes for the elderly um, get vaccinated during the coronavirus season and then might have these, um, you know, uh, like a huge amount of these adverse reactions. Do you see this as a, as a danger? Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's not just me saying this. And, and by the way, people should not, should not take what I say as gospel. You shouldn't, I'm not a doctor, but you shouldn't take what your doctor says as gospel either. What your doctor says is not science. What Tony Fauci says is not science. What I say is not science. Science is what you find by doing your own research on peer-reviewed publications. Oh, I'm going to tell you a different point of view from them that's based upon my own research and also, you know, thorough vetting. And I always try to be accurate and say, never say anything that I cannot support with peer-reviewed publications, but, you know, people need to do their own research. Here is the issue. The people who have criticized me for years, people like Tony Fauci, Paul Offit, Peter Hotez, Ian Lipkin, Andrew Pollard, the biggest names in vaccinology, they all say about pathogenic priming the same thing I say. This is a really dangerous out potential outcome from coronavirus vaccines. And before we give these to the population, you need to give them to enough people in a study group that some of them get exposed to the wild virus and we see what happens to them before we start giving this to the population. And that's why it's crazy to say that you can complete these studies in 45 days, because even if you give it to 30,000 people, you have to wait to a substantial number of those people have been exposed to the wild virus or we will never know what's happened. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, what happened? Am I? Okay. I, I'll just, let me give you a, a quick history of this, and then I, I got to sign off. Sure. There was a SARS epidemic, as you guys know, in 2002. And after that, there was a consortium of Western nations in China that came together under the auspices of NIH and with Tony Fauci. And they began working on developing a coronavirus vaccine, because of course SARS was a kind of coronavirus. And they developed 35 different models. So it's a lot like today. Today we have 200, but back then they had 35, and they all look pretty good. They chose the four best in class, and they developed vaccines from them. They actually went through and, and developed a pilot program, so each one of them had hundreds of vaccine doses. And they gave those vaccines to ferrets, which is the animal that is most analogous to human beings when it comes to studying upper respiratory viral infections. When the ferrets got it, they had very, very good antibody response. Then something horrible happened. When the, the, the scientists all were celebrating, popping champagne and saying, we did it, we got winners. Then they exposed the ferrets, they challenged them. They exposed them to the wild virus and the ferrets all died. And the ones that didn't die got horribly, horribly sick in all of their bodies, particularly their lungs. And then they remembered something. They remembered that back in the early 1960s, they had tested an RSV vaccine, which was very similar to coronavirus, on 35 kids. They had gotten a very good response in the animals, but they had never challenged the animals. They, but because they got the good antibody response, they went and they tried the the vaccines on children, and the children got wonderful antibody response. So again, they thought they hit the jackpot. But then when they challenged the kids with RSV, the kids who had the vaccine got horribly sick, and two of those children, two of the 35 died. They called it off, off the test, they stopped, and they never understood it, what had happened. It's a big question, a big scandal. Then in 2012, 40 years later, 50 years later, this thing happened to the ferrets and they went, oh my gosh, that's what happened to those little kids back in the 60s. That's what we did. And then two, and they stopped all of the, the tests on the ferrets. All those 35 vaccines disappeared. Two years later, Sanofi developed with NIH a dengue vaccine. And again, the dengue vaccine created a strong antibody response. And, but there were some signals that they saw that made it look like they may be a pathogenic priming problem. And, but they went ahead and they gave it to a couple hundred thousand children in the Philippines. And when the wild dengue came back around, the kids who had gotten the vaccine got horribly sick, and 600 of those children died. And the Philippine government is currently prosecuting 
I think 10 or 12 healthcare workers who were responsible for those decisions in the Philippines criminally. So that is what, you know, people like Paul Offit, who are, you know, my enemies, are saying the exact same thing I'm saying now. We really have to look for the pathogenic priming signal. And all of you guys who are concerned about this vaccine, that's the thing that you really need to keep your eye on. It's one of the many things, but it's the thing that they, it's going to be tricky for them to do because even if they have 30,000 people, they say, we're, you know, AstraZeneca says we're going to have 30,000 people in this study. That means 15,000 are going to get the vaccine. 15 get it, a control. And then we need to make sure that they really honest about a very few of those people are going to be exposed to coronavirus, maybe 20%, maybe even less. And we have to be sure at the one that to look at what happened to the control group, how many of those people get sick and what happened, because how are we even going to know if they got exposed to coronavirus? What if the coronavirus disappears? Now, what if in the places where they have the, where they're giving these um, vaccines, the, you know, this, where they're conducting this experiment, what if there's no coronavirus in that place? They're doing it in multiple countries. A lot of what they're going to do is not going to be transparent. You saw this week, they shut down AstraZeneca because one person got transverse myelitis then it came out later and it was actually the second case of transverse myelitis how come we never heard about the first case because they had already made a decision that the first case had nothing to do with the vaccine how do they make that decision mm -hmm. it's the company that's making that decision so it was also a case of multiple sclerosis and they made a decision that that had nothing to do with the vaccine, so they don't have to tell anybody. And that's because they're immune from criminal and civil liability, right? Well, also, they're in charge of the study. Mm -hmm. So if they make a decision at some point, that this is why it's important to have a placebo, a real placebo, because then you can, at least there's some transparency you can say, there was no multiple sclerosis in the placebo group, but there was two cases of transverse myelitis and, two, and a case of multiple sclerosis in the vaccine group. Um, you know, as a signal, but what if they don't tell you? What if they just said, well, we already made a decision that had nothing to do with the vaccine, so why should we report it to anybody? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's to stop them? That's what they do with all their other studies. You know, I'm suing them now for Gardasil, and. They had nine people die in the study group, but they decided not to report it because they said, well, a lot of people died from suicide and from car accidents. But we know that aluminum makes people depressed and it, and it can cause seizures and it can make you, you know, suicidal. Or even if you die in a car accident or suicide, you want to have that data. Mm -hmm. If they make the decision early on, we don't need to report that data because how could that have anything to do with our vaccine? Mm -hmm. And so there's an editing process that takes place 
before the public sees the data, we're not seeing it in real time. We should be saying to these companies, we need to see the data in real time. We don't want to wait for your report. As by the time they get to the report, they buried a lot of the stuff that we ought to be hearing about. Anyway, I got to go, guys. It's been really fun talking to you. Well, thank you very much for your time. Let me know. Let me know if there's something that you know we can work on together. Yeah, we love I'd, very, I'd very much like to stay in touch because we're going to transform this thing into a think tank. We have all this support from scientists from all over the world who are thinking about what can we do as what can we take as a positive result from this corona scandal. It's not really a crisis, it's a scandal. And all of them agree we have to think about global warming, we have to think about getting rid of, uh, rid of uh, intensive animal farming, uh, we have to worry about, for example, the fires in California. Those are the things that really need our attention, but we also need to think about why do we need all these vaccines when there's a lot of evidence right now that says that we already have uh, crossing immunity from uh, prior corona infections yeah well there's a lot of, a lot of problems but you have my contacts right yes yeah. yes we'll be in touch okay. definitely good Let's get in touch with us after this so that we know we know how to get back to you okay we will thank you very good much luck, everybody. Thank, you. thank you bye bye take care bye.